Are you new to coaching? Starting out as a coach can be incredibly overwhelming, especially when you aren't given much direction from your administration. That's why I created the New Coaches Playbook. It includes a roadmap to help you start building your coaching foundation and a guide to seven podcast episodes in order that will give you the steps and ideas you need to build relationships, define your role, communicate with your admin, and make a plan to start coaching. Coach, what's your instructional coaching personality type? Have you ever wondered what superpowers make you a really strong coach? and what areas you can strengthen with just a little bit of direction? Well, now you can find out. I created the What's Your Instructional Coaching Personality Type Quiz to help you answer this very question. Just head to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q to take the two-minute quiz and get your coaching personality type sent right to your inbox. Even better, you'll get a playlist of podcast episodes handpicked just for you to help you hone your superpowers and strengthen your areas of growth. I'm so excited to share this quiz with you, so don't wait to take it. Go to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q and learn so much about your coaching style. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey, coaches, and welcome to episode number 127 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. I know this last school year was really hard for everyone involved. Two years of instability and trauma impacted students, parents, teachers, and the school system as a whole. This month, I want to provide you with some support all about behavior management. And that's because I got so many questions about it through this past year. Instructional coaches are often asked to focus on the instructional side of school, but we all know that if behavior isn't in place, nothing else is going to happen in that classroom. Classrooms where kids and teachers are unhappy and unmanaged are often in the rooms where the least learning takes place. And the problem with that is we were seeing that in many, many classrooms last year. It was just not a great place for kids or adults to be. When they're frustrated by so many challenges, teachers often turn to the things that they've seen before, and that is often from their own experience as students. The issue with this is that many of these practices and the practices that we now frequently turn to affect different populations of kids in different ways. And that's why I wanted the first episode of this mini series on behavior management to be about anti-racist behavior management. Without a framework for understanding this principle, nothing else is going to work because we're going to be impacting kids differently and we might not even realize it. I've invited Deanna Smith here today to talk with me about these ideas and share her knowledge. I have learned so much from following her online, and I'm really looking forward to sharing her with you today. Welcome to the podcast, Deanna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to this topic so much, and I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of coaches. Yes, I hope so as well. So I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Um, you can talk a little bit about who you are, kind of how you've arrived at where you are, like the path you've taken, and what kind of work you focus on right now. Absolutely. Thank you. So my name is uh, Dr. Deanna Smith, and right now I am a school administrator. I started off as a teacher. I've taught 
lots of different things. I taught fifth grade for a while. I taught intervention. So I was an interventionist and at the school I was at, it was K through eight. So I was doing math push-in for the entire school, essentially. Um, after that, I started teaching middle school math and science and social emotional learning, did a little bit of teaching high school as well. And after that, I really transitioned more into teacher coaching. So I started working with teachers, um, doing what I would call anti-racist teacher coaching. It was not, it wasn't my official title. We weren't really saying the words anti-racist yet, heavily in education, but I started off as a coach and working with new teachers and teachers who just felt like they needed extra support and kind of worked my way through that and eventually became uh, an administrator, which I do right now. And then I also work with teachers across the country. Primarily, I find them through my social media platforms and support them for folks who want to start, sustain, and scale equity work wherever they're at along that process in their classrooms and in their schools. That's amazing. Um, I'm sure that you have seen, I kind of mentioned a few minutes ago that instructional coaches um, see a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, they see all the <laughs> and they see all the practices. They see the good, bad, and the ugly, everything in between. And, um, and so sometimes looking at all that can be overwhelming. And so I'm sure that, I mean, you're a great guest for us, I think, because you have had that experience and being a push-in teacher and being a teaching co teacher coach, you've seen all of it. Um, so, so I think that you probably have a great perspective for us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to, uh, share and learn from you as well. And, you know, we're all, we're all still very much in this together. So I'm excited. So could you talk about, to get us started, a little bit of the historical problems that we're seeing with behavior management, specifically about how the, the way that we've done behavior management for years or decades longer, how it affects children of color? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is an issue that has so much resonance on like the daily individual level, but yet it roots are so deep systemically. And I think understanding those systemic roots will really help folks to understand how we can break down some of those harmful practices. So just to start, I mean, most teachers, definitely myself included, while you might have like some sort of behavior management training, right? Like in your credentialing program, most teachers do not leave their programs feeling equipped to handle what their students are bringing to the table, mm -hmm. um, often on day one. So there's a fundamental like kind of lack of, of awareness. And I think there's also a deeper lack of awareness of understanding that really the way that we do school, like the structures that we have in place are actually not conducive to supporting like positive behavior outcomes for students. So the purpose of schooling um, has really historically in the United States really been about socializing kind of like a working class, right? Our schools were um, kind of created, public schools at least, were kind of creative as a melting pot, like a, a place to have kids during the day, right? And the idea is kids kind of go and regardless of what they're bringing to the table, they go in this very standardized experience of school. And the reason why we're seeing, I think we're seeing so much problems with behavior is because that standardized experience of school does not accommodate for our students and where they're coming from culturally, linguistically. I mean, even when you talk about neurodivergent students and the ableism that we see our students experiencing in schools. So schools just were not designed um, to work for students in that way. And understanding and accepting like that is fundamental I think is almost liberating because we can get so stressed out like, 
why isn't this working? And it's like, okay, no, it wasn't designed to work that way. Like it wasn't, it wasn't designed for our students. So it's not going to work for our students as, as we, as we see them now. A lot of what we see now in schools, especially because of the demographic mix mismatch between teachers who are overwhelmingly white women, statistically speaking, and our student body, which if you know anything about the U.S. demographics, our students are becoming more and more students of color coming from different places, and they're just experiencing different things culturally. So there isn't a shared alignment of cultural expectations and understandings that teachers are coming to the classroom with. I mean, most teachers probably get at least two or three students if you're in the lower grades that don't speak English, you know, let alone have a cultural value that you share. So there's just so much difference. There's such a wide gap between um, what people are bringing to the table when they come into the classroom. And we don't have a lot of good systems to, to mitigate that gap. And so what we've seen is black and brown students being vilified for, for not being able to conform to a set of standards and practices that were not designed for them in the first place. What that vilification looks like is over suspension, over expulsion um, of black and brown kids going all the way down to preschool. So before they're even in kindergarten, like the idea that you can even expel a preschooler is wild to me, but um, black and brown kids are six times more likely to be suspended at the preschool level alone. So it starts early and then it continues and perpetuates. And you have some schools that have even you know, school resource officers or school police, um, which adds another layer of escalation. So then you are further criminalizing students. So all of this happens at a very, very systemic level, but I think we can see it play out in our individual classrooms, but it's important to recognize that context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what does that look like in individual classrooms? When we're talking about the way that teachers interact with students and you're saying that there's like a you know disparity between the way that, you know, what the teacher's bringing and what the kids come with, like they're, look, they're coming from different worlds. So what does mm -hmm. it look like whenever teachers are interacting with kids and they're not prepared? What kinds of practices do we see? Yeah, so a perfect example that I always like to reference is when you look at why black and brown kids are suspended or expelled or sent even sent to the principal's office, kicked out of class, etc. And it starts really with being kicked out of class and then gradually escalates. Um, but when you look at something like that, the data shows us that it's usually for um, subjective offenses. So mm -hmm. things like disrespect, right? Like, just, just think of think of the idea of disrespect. You and I could write a write a definition of disrespect in the classroom, and it would be different for each person. And that's why the culture matters because there is a cultural understanding of what it means to act and look respectful that might not be shared between the teacher and the student. So it's those kinds of things that we that we often overlook as this is just common sense. This is just, everybody knows this, right? We're all on the same page, but you're really not on the same page because our teachers are coming from a different cultural experience. And it, even if you, you know, you can be a black teacher and this can be your experience. You can have a different cultural experience than the students that you're working with. And so because that there's not that deep pool of shared meaning along what it means to be respectful, what it means to show you're listening, right? How do you know a kid is listening? Mm -hmm. You know, what some, you know, there's all those, um, <laughs> those, acronyms like STAR, right? You're sitting up, you're listening, whatever. That's not the same for all students. They show it in different ways. So those are just two small examples of areas where we think that there's an objective understanding of this is disrespect and this is listening, 
But depending on your funds of knowledge and your culture and your experiences, you could have two different ideas about that. And that clash, that is where we see a lot of the disparities between Black and Brown students and white students when it comes to behavior response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That it's subjective um, reasons that people are, are sending kids out of the classroom. That's a really good point. And I'm wondering, you know, what does that look like to to address those kinds of things you know i mean you, you to work a lot with anti-racist behavior management i'm assuming with lots of different kinds of teachers and so how mm -hmm. do you kind of bridge that gap to where they even see the need for it or like how do you get them to say yeah maybe i should make some changes yeah it really comes down to awareness and so that that is um making culture visible is really the first thing that i have to do I have to get folks to understand that they have a culture because for so long, so many white folks have been incorrectly told that they don't have a culture, that it's like, no, this is just, I, what do you like, I, they don't even think to, even white itself is kind of a catch all right you if you're white you're saying not Italian not Irish not German, you could point to a culture with that right but to say white is almost perceived as this lack of culture, but that's not true it's the dominant culture but because white folks are so immersed in it, they don't recognize the water that they're swimming in. But me as a black person, I can clearly see, you know, what is white culture? What is black culture? It's obvious to me um, because I have to know how to do both. But because white people don't have to see their culture, they don't even know that they're holding their students to these un, kind of unspoken, unfair things because they're thinking, oh, we're all on the same page. So just making that visible is the first thing, getting folks to understand things like implicit bias, understand things like you can, like, because it doesn't mean that being racist doesn't look like what people think it looks like. And I say that to say, like a lot of folks mean, what do you mean I'm racist? Like I, I voted for Obama, I have a black best friend, right? But what I'm trying to help people understand is we are all systemically impacted by racism. And so you as a product of this culture have been fed a narrative, have been fed stories that impact your biases and how you think about people of color. And it might not be on the top of your mind, mm -hmm. but it's implicit and it is there. So another study that's really powerful that came out of Georgetown was a study about the adultification of young black girls and teachers did. Yeah, that one was so good. And it, it talked about how teachers literally perceive black girls as less innocent. And these are not teachers that would call themselves racist, of course not. But it's just about understanding that, no, there is something going on subconsciously. There is a cultural and a belief that's happening behind what your actions are showing that is informed by our racist society. So making that visible, excavating that, pulling that up and giving folks kind of a mirror is the absolute first step because I can't come in and say, you know, you need to think about why you keep kicking this kid out of the classroom unless we've we've talked about that because then teachers just get frustrated and they're like, well, I'm trying to teach my lesson and he's got to go. He's not following the directions, right? Mm -hmm. So you you have to do that internal work first. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle for a lot of people. Um, and I've read several books and it talks about how, how do you address this topic with, with individuals who are maybe not on board with it yet. And it is, it's a real challenge sometimes um, because our, because that is our pivot is no, I'm not racist because we're trying to defend, mm -hmm. you know, what, that, what I mean, because we've painted that as, oh my gosh, this is like the worst thing you can be. And it is a terrible, terrible mm -hmm. thing, but we're all a little bit back. So we right. all have to acknowledge that before we can 
make any changes in it and we have to yes. the media we consume and and i mean just and, and the the voices that were you know in our childhoods you know that all these things were just feeding us these certain stereotypes or certain um, expectations of people and then it's just swimming in your little brain like it's just in there and you don't even know it's in there until it comes out and it doesn't feel yes. like people think it's all um i know I, I know many people who feel like like racism is all like um saying racial slurs you know right and if you're not saying racial slur then you're okay but it's it's much more subversive than that and that's why it's so dangerous right Exactly. Exactly. And we have to make that we have to uh, make it more plain for people because it's so easy for folks to, to point to racism. And you think about these flagrant things. But the reality is, it's not a precursor to getting a teaching credential to not have prejudice, right? right. There's no test. They don't they don't screen. And this is what I always say. Teachers are just people like mm. your teacher is just a person who is a product of their upbringing, their culture, what they read, what they consume, what they think, all of that, um, you know, it, it, it informs how you teach. And so I think we want to, um, people falsely think things like, well, we keep politics out of the classroom. Right. Just, if you're, just because your students don't know your political affiliation doesn't mean that it isn't coming across in your actions, right? There are things about who you are as a person that are transmitted to your students, and especially in these high moments of stress. And that's why I think behavior is such a critical thing to discuss, because when we're responding to behavior, behavior nine times out of 10, we're having some sort of emotional response. Our heart is racing. We're stressed out. It's timely. We're frustration. That is when you, the most prejudice comes out, right? You're not thinking clearly. You're, ele you're, you're escalated. And so in those moments of escalation, I find teachers to be the most biased. And so it's really, really critical that we understand that it's not it, it is in you, these biases, and whether you realize it or not, your kids are picking up on it and it does matter and it does inform your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such good, all such good points. So how does anti-racist behavior management differ from the way that people often approach management in the classroom? Well, I think even the term behavior management is kind of a misnomer. I call it behavior management because I think that's how people understand it. But I think just the idea that you're managing the behavior um, puts a lot of emphasis on the response as opposed to the proactive measures. So really like people, when I really work with people, they're kind of surprised because the absolute last thing that I do is give you a checklist of things to do when things go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. That's like at the end, yeah. because I think that that's, there's so much that you can do in the beginning. You have to contextualize the behavior. So I get, so a teacher um, is like, okay, you know, what do I do when my students are like, I'm trying to teach and they're, you know, being quote unquote disrespectful. Mm -hmm. My first question isn't what's the behavior. I'm like, okay, what are you teaching? And let me see your seating chart. And what did you, what did you do for the rest of the day? What is your schedule? What is your relationship with them? How often do you talk to the parents? All of these things are proactive measures that you do to create a community of care and accountability. Mm -hmm. Because when you have a classroom community where care and accountability are fundamental building blocks of what you do, you are going to spend a lot less time managing behavior. Like the last thing you want to do is just be made, like you're playing whack-a-mole, right? And right. so there will definitely, right, there will definitely be those times. So I always tell teachers like, this is not to say that you know a student will never step one toe out of line what it is to say 
is that before the behaviors even happen, you've created a community, right, where you kind of take off the first like top 80% of that. And then you bring yourself down to kind of outlier cases, right? Like these extreme cases or these unusual cases, but you've already built up this capacity and the schema to respond to it. So you're not responding out of this angry, flustered, frustrated, um, I'm at my wits in place, you know, and we've all been at that place. We've been at that place where we're like, I'm never teaching this grade again. They told me about this group. I can't wait till summer. I can't wait till happy hour. We've all been there. Um, and so it's really just my goal to bring people out of that place as often as possible by creating a classroom, an intentional classroom community. I love that. It's so, it's so preventative. And so, and it's also just what everybody wants for their kid. So it's right. Perfect sense. I mean, of course, yeah, if we're, if we're trying to respond to the behaviors after the fact, it's too late. Um, and so the other benefit of having that classroom community set up is that whenever you do get one of those behaviors, that child knows what to expect from you right. because you've created that relationship with them. They know what your, what your style is. They know what your room is like. So they know they're still going to be treated like a person whenever you are, regardless of exactly. what you want to do, you know, to work through that behavior. So I love yes. that. The teachers struggled so much this past year to manage student Ooh. behavior. And, yeah, and it seems like, I mean, logically, it would tell me that, you know, logic would tell me that it was a result of how unstable this past couple of years have been and how much mm-hmm. trauma has gone on in the past two years. I know myself, I was not even in the classroom. I work, you know, I, I'm a, um, I've re- I do most of my work virtually. And there was a time whenever I had, I, I get blind spots before I have migraines. And I had a blind spot for, I'm not kidding, like seven months. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know, and I was like, well, I guess I just have this now forever. (laughs) This is me now. Yeah, this is my new normal. And and then I don't know when it went away. I couldn't tell you and it's just gone. Um, But it it was like this constant stress of, you know, fear for your, literally for your lives and for your children's lives and for your your, um, well-being and our mental health was suffering and everything was just so hard and still things are going on still that are, are, are hard. Um, so what can the school do to support students and teachers with this? Because I feel like after virtual learning ended for many schools, they just went back and they're like, great, now we're in person. We can you right. know, with that. Mm-hmm. And that thing was really put into place. And so many teachers felt like we're not being real here. And so many students were like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do because, you know, you didn't help me with this transition at all. So right. what can schools do like as a, as a whole? Yeah, I think, and it's so critical to recognize that, you know, our students are so like the, the emotional state that our kids are in, you cannot over, you can't, I cannot overemphasize how critical it is to humanize students in this moment. Because what I've also seen from a lot of teachers and understandably so, because they're frustrated is just these kids don't want to, they just, you know, Mm -hmm. the kids are out of control. It's the parents all this finger pointing back and forth between the kids being just terrible for no reason and the parents being terrible for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I think that that does is it it takes the focus off of the actual problem, which is the systemic problem. Like we can point fingers at parents all day and say parents aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. But personally, I don't think anybody should be asked to, to do what they're doing. So they're responding to a toxic system that does not work. Mm-hmm. And so like, we can't lose sight of that because I think that we lose a lot of our 
um, our, our options, right, to just be better in the future when we're so caught up with what the parents and the kids aren't doing. It's like, okay, is the, but is it, is it kind of ridiculous though to be asking kids to do this? Because I have teachers that are like, oh, you know, they just don't want to be here. They don't want to learn. I'm like, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want to learn either. Like, it's not a good time. I, I, you, if your emotional needs goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If your emotional and physical needs aren't being met, if you don't feel safe, you're not going to learn from that teacher. And so I think what schools can do and teachers can do is to recognize you are either going to spend the time later or you can front end it now mm-hmm. and be intentional about how you're going to, I'm assuming people are on spring break, how you're going to start in the fall. Because I think a lot of schools and teachers are like, I don't have time right now, but I encourage you, honey, you will not have time later. It will, it hurts you more in the long run to not invest and build that up and start strong in the fall um, with things like prioritizing relationships, prioritizing social emotional care. If there's anybody that's in charge of a school that's listening, I'm talking about your budget. You need to write a check. You need to go ahead and get the funds. And there are a lot of funds out there. Teachers that are listening, folks that work in schools, the government actually, there's, there's millions of dollars that there's so much money that schools don't even know what to spend it on. And that's a fact. There was a whole, you know, kind of article about it talking about how we got a lot of COVID funds and schools haven't spent it yet. So there is money to invest in um, whether that looks like changing the schedules, more support staff, bringing in social emotional health experts, hiring another counselor, hiring more teachers to get those class sizes down. There's so many things that you can do in the beginning to start strong. Or, you know, if your district has school resource officers, how, like, is there funds from the school resource officers that could be re, uh, redistributed to other things in your school? Where I'm at in LA, they just took, the, the LA school police has like a billion dollars they're not going to miss 300 million of that. They got a billion dollars. They took a good chunk of that and reappropriated to hire social workers, more teachers, instructional aides, um, you know, uh, restorative justice coordinators. All of these things really go far to help the adults in the building. And as far as the kids go, you need to recognize the context of, of what's happening and that a student is not a well. A student is not going to be well adjusted in your school if they don't have time to process um, and to re-regulate themselves after just the continuous tumultuous chaos that we've all been experiencing. Um, you know, numbers. I was just reading an article a couple of days ago from like Better Health. I don't know if y'all have heard of Better Health. It's like this mental health app. Yeah. They like their Mint Better Help, Calm, Mindspace, all of these mindfulness apps are saying that they've never seen this many adults traumatized, right? That they're like numbers are just off the charts because so many adults are needing help. So if we're going through that as adults, imagine what our kids are going through. And they don't, they can't, they can't pull up better help. So it's really important to just start with that social emotional health um, aspect and then work from there. I have to ask you because you mentioned um, a toxic system that doesn't work. And I'm wondering, how do you motivate yourself or what, how do you keep coming back, you know, with good energy to do the work? What do you, what do you tell yourself? Because I know that a lot of coaches have seen so much that they are, Mm. sometimes they feel like, what, what am I doing? What is the point? You know, like it's not every year, it's the same problem. Things are not getting better. Things are getting worse. 
So what is, what do you say, or what do you do? What does that look like? <laughs> a couple of things that I think about. The first thing I think about is that I am sowing seeds for seeds for a future that is not my own. I keep telling myself that I'm planting seeds. I will probably not live to see the day when schools are really dismantled and rebuilt in the way that they need to. But I know that I'm I'm planting those seeds. And a couple of things that's happened that encouraged me. So for example, um, my first teaching job, I actually taught in South America. I taught um, in Chile and in Mexico. And I taught for a program that I was doing with the UN um, helping like find early finance skills for like single moms. So I, I'm teaching this class and I met someone there. This was probably like almost 10 years ago. I met someone there and I had like a really heated discussion with them about um, not it, like it wasn't quite Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter didn't really exist the way that it did back then. But I had this discussion with them kind of about just talking about how, you know, we don't live in a post-racial society heated discussion. I mean, this person was just like, you're wrong, you know, just very, very, very heated discussion, right? Fast forward to 2020, the wake of George Floyd, this is like nine years later, out of nowhere, I get a DM from this person that's like, you know what, I don't know if you remember this, but we got into an argument one time at a bar in Valparaiso, Chile. And what you said like really impacted me and I couldn't hear it then, but I've been thinking about it. And now I'm organizing with my local BLM chapter and da, 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 da. So at that moment, it definitely felt like a lost cause because that person was in that moment being really racist, right? Like really shutting me down. Mm-hmm. But I, it, and I didn't know if it would ever happen, right? I, so you have to let go of the hope or, or marrying yourself to the outcome that it's going to get better right away because it might not. But you have to be okay with sowing seeds and knowing that like you're investing in something that's coming in the future. The other thing that I do from a really pragmatic stance is I don't go at it alone. I have my squad if it's not at my school because I have worked in schools where like there's a lot of teachers that support it. And I've worked in schools where it's like I'm the only one and I'm like that teacher that everyone's like, oh, Lord, you know, don't have her talking. And you know what I mean? Like we've all been in that position. So you need to find your squad of people and you need to just like really outline some goals and work at the small things. Don't get discouraged if, you know, obviously we all want to end standardized testing, but how do we chip away at that? Okay. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we chip away? Maybe it's not standardized testing ends next year, but maybe instead of a beginning of year, middle of year and the end of year, we just do a beginning and an ending of year. Maybe we don't end standardized testings next year, but we advocate and get a parent group together and all the parents and families opt, uh, you know, a critical mass of their kids out. So we're divesting from standardized testing, right? So just finding those small goals and finding your team that will help you stay encouraged and engaged because you, you have to feel like you're doing something right, but you might not get the big, you might not take the big win every time you might not see that. Um, So you have to be okay with one, just knowing that you're sowing seeds and two, figuring out how do you chip away at it. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that because it's, it's been so disheartening for so many people. And I totally, yeah. um, with those, with the way that you're approaching that. And the other thing that helps me is that, as I think, well, it might make like, it's kind of like the conversation that you had that years later, you know, had a positive outcome. It, you don't, you, it might make an impact on somebody. I mean, there's a child right. that's positively impacted. And you don't know, like, you, I mean, it can happen tomorrow. It can happen the next, but it can happen soon. And you just, 
they're everywhere. They're everywhere kids need help. And if you are doing something, if you can impact a teacher, that's every kid that teacher would ever teach that you're going to make a difference for. And that's right. hundreds and hundreds of kids, you know, down the right. road. So it, and even thing. if it's just one kid, I mean, I think we get so caught up in like yes. a class. You you have you might have uh, 20 years of third grade, you know, you might have hundreds and hundreds of students, but to that one kid, you're their third grade teacher. You're mm -hmm. their third grade, you know, the, the person that does the instructional coaching. They only have one experience of you. So you could fundamentally change something and you don't even know it could just be that one kid. You know, if you can reach every kid one year, you know, let's say you push into six classrooms, one kid per class every year, you teach for 10 years. I mean, that, that counts for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned parents and, you know, making sure that parents are part of the system and that the system is working for parents. How can schools build bridges and really include parents in the school community? Mm, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that's a tricky one. I think one thing that I always encourage families and, and schools to understand is that not every culture has a positive um, contextual relationship with schooling. So when you think about native students or, or indigenous folks, what have what have schools done for indigenous folks? You know, that like they were a, a site of cultural warfare. When you think about black and brown kids, they experienced trauma at school, right? And and at least in the black community, we're not a monolith, but one thing I, I feel in the black community is we don't have the same um, relationship with authority as other cultures do. So what I mean by that is it's not assumed that the teacher knows best, right? And for a good reason, because historically the teacher has not known best when it's come to black and brown kids. So you have to understand that not every family and not every culture is going to just automatically like want to be involving themselves in the way that you want them to involve. You know, they, they might not answer the calls when you want them to answer. And you have to have like some understanding of that. Like their parents are just people you know, they have their own things going on. And I think um, a lot of schools and, and teachers can almost get like offended <laughs> if the families don't participate in the way that they like want them to participate. But you got to understand, like, there's so many other factors going in and you have to learn to appreciate different ways of participation without assigning a value to it. If I don't, if I don't answer or if I don't show up to parent teacher conferences, that doesn't make me a bad parent. Like you, you have no idea of the situation. So I think a lot of teachers just really need to let that go. So I think it's kind of reframing what participation looks like. The school doesn't get to define participation because I might be a parent and maybe I don't come to the PTA or I miss my parent teacher conference. But the way that I'm participating is advocating for my students is making sure that you're on your P's and Q's and I want to know why my kid was kicked out of class or, you know, I'm that parent at the IEP meeting that always want that wants to have an advocate at the IEP meeting, right? Like there, it looks different. So I think we have to like kind of reshape how we think about participation, understand that different cultures have different relationships with schools, and then also just open your doors. I think some schools are so, um, almost like protective and afraid they really want to control how parents participate for me i i open i say open up the doors get the families in there now especially that people are more open with covid let them see and experience your school and let them be equal stakeholders and partners like surveys asking them what do they want to see uh what could it look like and inviting them in one of the things that i always do when i'm dealing with behavior in my back pocket i will always pull this out i have a student that's perpetually giving me struggles or a group of students, 
their parents need to come in and supervise them. You will do a parent shadow or a family shadow for the day. Or I don't know if folks saw in Louisiana, there was kids that were getting into fights a lot in the hallway. So they had like the dad brigade. It's a heartwarming story. And everybody was like, oh, that's so cute. But I'm like, but really that's a strong pedagogical move because mm -hmm. that's bringing the families and the community into the school. It's not just saying come in and back to school night when we want you. It's like, no, you need to be here. And then it becomes our responsibility and we have this community responsibility. So how can you partner with the community, bring the families in um, to be a part of it? Like even for like cultural celebrations, right? When I, one of my core memories is when I was in the third grade, I was the only student of color at my school. Um, but my mom made like soul food and like did a presentation on black culture for my, all of the kids in my class. And that was a really huge moment for me because it was like, I get to share my culture with people. And it was a big moment for my mom because the teachers thought of her as like this absentee parent, right? Because she wasn't, because I was late all the time and I missed a lot of class and she like missed one thing or the other. So I think they definitely judged her. But then when it was time, right, she was there and she, you know, made food for everybody. So I think it's just like being creative and finding those ways and really um, recognizing that like, it's not, it's not just common sense or it's not, there's not a right or wrong way to do it, to do family participation and to just be inclusive of that. That is so true. My husband's parents immigrated here whenever they were in their thirties and, um, and he was born here. They're, they're from Mexico and uh, he was born here in El Paso. We're right across the border from Mexico, El Paso, El Paso, Texas. And so his parents had very little experience with schooling of any kind. Um, they, you know, they, his father doesn't read or write. He went to school for a few years. His mom went to school mm -hmm. like whenever she was with the nuns. Like it's a whole, you know, I mean, it was a whole, there's a whole completely different way of, right. you know, they didn't have stability. They didn't have the family life that, that, you know, maybe we think is ideal or they really didn't have any family lives at all um, for a long time. And right. so they're, home like their 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 home was not really set up in such a way to support my husband at school because they had no clue what that would even mm -hmm. be they didn't even have right. background there and they didn't speak the language because at the time now people in the city teachers largely reflect mm -hmm. the population of students so we're over 80 percent hispanic here and over 80 percent of the teachers are hispanic as well i mean it's, it's that's I mean everybody just stays here nobody leaves <laughs> so it's, it's one of those cities the boomerang cities what they call them everybody comes back so um they but at the time that was not really the case and so he had many white teachers and he kind of in retrospect he said that he has felt like like how many of those teachers looking back to some of the things that the teachers would tell him he said I really don't think they thought I was going to do much and right. I, could, I now I can see that as an adult at the time I didn't I didn't really get it as a kid, but they, and then the parents didn't speak English. So they didn't go to the school much because there was not yeah. translation available. Now there is here everywhere, but you know, I don't know about other places. So it's, it's so much more accessible for families. Now, even the language alone was a huge barrier for them. Yeah. But for that school culture was just completely foreign to them. They just, they were like, oh, we don't know what that is. And so go to school, do what your teacher says. And then he'd come right. home and he wouldn't have done very well in something. And they'd say, why didn't you do what your teacher, just do what your teacher tells you, just do it. And he's like, why well, didn't, I didn't understand it. Well, just do what they say, you know? So they didn't, right. have, they didn't know how to <laughs> And he was like, I thought I was like, he did, you know, and he's such an right. intelligent person, but he struggled when he was younger because he didn't have that, that bridge. You know, there was no bridge to the school for him. Right, exactly. And we just don't, we, because like, and that's what I always ask teachers, what was your experience of your family being involved? 
because mm-hmm. that gives me a sense of what their frame of reference is. Yeah. Because if they're like, oh yeah, my mom did this and she was uh, right. the, the room mother and all that. I'm like, okay, well, honey, that's not the reality for everybody. Yeah. And, and it's letting go of the value because you know what? Some people would hear the story that you just told and be like, oh, well, her husband's parents, you know, are not the best parents or they should have been more involved. Remove right. the value statement. No, it doesn't. You don't know. That's my thing. It's like, we have no idea. <laughs> they, they could have been amazing parents. That's just not how they knew how to engage. So I think yeah. just letting go of that good and bad hierarchy of parent involvement is critical. That's a really good point too. My, my experience was whenever I started teaching, I was surprised at, at the amount of parent involvement because <laughs> I came from a home where my mom, you know, we, we were all you know, taken to school. And, <laughs> but she was just like, I don't know, just wasn't that worried about it, I guess. Right. Was well in school and I was fine, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a huge, like, I remember, I can distinctly remember, and few people are going to be shocked about this, but I was in high school and I was like, I have homework to do. And she was like, you find out how to do homework on your own time. We have to do work in the yard. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like I'm going to teach you time management in the only way I know how. Which right. Is right. Most of your time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Manage what little time you have. Good luck. Yes, that's right. Now you have to choose what you're going to work on. And, um, and my, my dad never went to the school. I don't remember him at any school functions. And whenever I saw dads coming to school, I was like, wow, I was so right. I didn't expect that. You know, my mom was like, oh, we have to go to another concert. Oh my gosh, is this ever going to end <laughs> in the back. And whenever they walk you off the stage, just keep walking out. Like that's what she has to get. When they give you your award, just keep walking. That's what she used to tell us. <laughs> I think it's hilarious, but I think that people right. might be horrified by that. <laughs> I, and you know what? It's like every every family has a different dynamic and understanding of what that looks like. But she still did what she needed to do. Obviously, look at you right. now. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> and, and you think you grow up thinking everybody is that way, and then you start teaching yep. thinking everybody is that way, and yep. then families that are so different than yours, and you're like, oh my yes. gosh, even do with it. So just yes. that understanding of culture, it's such a good it's like it. It permeates at every level. It's so important. Yep. So how can teachers create in their classrooms an environment designed to support behavior in positive ways? Yeah, so, so much, so much to do. Um, I think firstly, like I always do the physical space, making sure your physical space is reflective of the students that you have, but making sure that it's like soft and comfortable. I think like we, and I'm not saying go out and spend a bunch of money and like be one of those Instagram teachers because I definitely was not. In fact, there's a lot of compelling research that says some of our, especially lower elementary classrooms have too much simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like a well-designed space, like does it, does, it, um, does it accommodate communal learning? Are there spaces for people to be together? Are there, you know, are there processing space where I can get away? I'm big on calm corners. Um, having, you know, having your students represented, whether that's putting work on the walls, having visuals that, you know, encourage what you want to encourage. But so the pretty stuff, right? Like in my classroom, for example, I have all, or my old classroom, I I always think of myself as a teacher first. Um, I had all of the flags of the different countries that my students were from. I had like a Black Panther poster because obviously, um, and then I just had like uh, a women in STEM type of thing because I was teaching, uh, I was teaching math and science at the time. So I had those things that were just like fun visuals, but then I also had my kids work. I had 
um, places where I had our anchor charts. I'm big on anchor charts for all grade levels that were reinforcing the learning. That way you have something to reference and go back to. And then I had something a little fun. Like I had personal touches so that they feel like they're close to me. So that's thinking about your physical space. And then you want to think about your transitions and like your end caps. And I know for people that are multiple subject teachers or instructional coaches who are kind of going here and there and everywhere, it can be difficult because you're like, oh, I only have like 40 minutes in this block or however much time. But it really is worth the time just to plan out how will students come in and out of the room? And I don't just mean like the line up. I mean, are you going to play music? Is there, um, I'm big on scents, like my classroom had like a little scent diffuser. They always came into music and they always knew what was up because on Friday it was like hype music. Every other, other day was like gentle mindfulness music. And every, every class period, I always started with some sort of transition activity, whether it's a bell ringer, a mindfulness activity, a video, something to kind of like level set and let folks know like, okay, now we're in the classroom. Because you have to remember kids are, like their emotions and their bodies are like in a place all day in school. You don't know what just happened at recess out at lunch. So when you come in and you're on 10 and the teacher does nothing to like help you re-regulate and it's just like, Pam, we're like getting into long division and you were gone half of the, cause your mom had COVID. So you missed the long division. So now you're feeling some type of way you're, you know, embarrassed. You don't want to get called on. And so then what do you do? You act out because you don't know what's going on. So you're like, I'm not about to sit here and listen to this because you're already hyped up. You're already on 10 emotionally. So your classroom should always be helping students regulate their emotions and feel safe. Like that's the number one thing. And then you also want to think just about like your structure. We have at this point, I know that a lot of teachers complain about it. The kids have short attention spans. I hate to say it, but we have to kind of meet them where they're at. Like, I know nobody wants to, you know, we don't, we don't want to have to feel like we have to be super entertaining because the content is important, but the reality is we're going to have to bend a little. We need to design our instructional block in a way so that our students are having ample time to move, to participate, to do collective learning, to use their hands, to use gestures, to, to stay engaged. Um, and I wish it wasn't that way because I know a lot of teachers are like, why is it my job to put on a three ring circus for this child, right? But the reality is like, if we wanna get to the point where we can help them build that stamina, we have to meet them where they're at. So I'm not saying that you always have to have these cartoonish TPT over the top lessons, but you do need to recognize that COVID did change everything. Mm -hmm. It did. And social media is changing everything. Nowadays, if you, I just read the statistic that TikTok put out, you have to like have a hook within the first three seconds of a TikTok video for people to be interested in it. So if they're getting every three seconds stimulation, you know what I mean? Like look at things like Cocomelon, which is like super stimulating. That's what they grew up on. We have, we don't have a shot unless we're willing to meet them a little bit halfway with having that engaging, um, en engaging kind of sequence. So Broadly speaking, those are some things that I like to think about when I'm trying to figure out how can I set up my classroom for success so that I'm not constantly playing whack-a-mole, responding, responding, responding. Yeah, it's so important. What are some of your favorite ways to build a classroom community where all students are included and, and feel valued in that community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think a lot of it um, is just a mixture of like creating the container where folks feel safe. 
because I think like, it's one thing to be like, we're going to do an icebreaker and plan something. But the reality is, it, it, well, I guess it depends on the age. I'm thinking more of middle school. If kids don't feel safe and comfortable, they're not going to like be vulnerable and want to share. Mm. So I think when I think of community building activities, what brings people together, laughing together, incorporating mm. humor. I make sure I laugh with my kids every day. Um, I always do a circle, like an opening circle. When I was self-contained, I did a daily circle. When I was, um, you know, single subject, I did a weekly circle at the beginning or at the uh, end of the week so that students felt a sense of closure. So that really helped build the community. Um, I did a lot of like surveys and getting their feedback and their input. And that, and people are always like, all they're going to say is they want more recess. Yeah, they like, to be honest with you, like, do I always use their ideas? No. But there's something to be said for a kid feeling like you care about what they think, even if you don't implement anything, even if it's like, we want to do go noodle for an hour a day, like, of course, like nobody said they're going to say anything like that you actually have to use, but make them feel important, right? Like make them feel like they are a part and they have a say in the community. Um, if they feel like some accountability, agency, ownership of the classroom, when you start getting kids being like, this is my classroom, this is my space, this is our space, this is our class, this is our class identity, maybe we have a song, a cheer, a chant, whatever it is, that's when you'll start to see the behaviors go down. Because if I don't feel like I belong and this isn't my space, I don't care, I'll turn up, I'll tear things off the wall, what do I care? But if I'm like, oh wait, that's Susie's like artwork that she put on the wall and she really worked hard for that. And I love my teacher, my teacher loves me, like, I don't want to do that anymore. So I think it's really about helping them feel like they belong and that they have ownership of the community by listening feedback, finding moments of joy, time to laugh together, and being really consistent with those routines. Like make it a routine to build a relationship because it might not happen naturally. You're going to have to think about it. And you're going to have to plan it. Yeah. Yeah. I love the surveys. I used to do that with my fourth and third graders. And actually I was surprised at some of the things that they would say, um, things that they noticed or things that they really enjoyed that we maybe could do more of. Like, hey, I remember kids saying, I really love doing these projects we've been doing. And it's just, um, I mean, you never know what they're going to come up with. Right. Yes. Yes. Would you talk a little bit more about your circle? Your, your, you said you had a circle like you did daily, um, whenever you were self-contained and weekly, whenever you were at mm -hmm. lunch. So, I mean, there's, there's different types of circles and, and they're all sort of justice. They kind of talk about, there's like different like ways you can, you can, I think when people think about circles, usually they're thinking about a circle after something happens, but you can do a community building circle. It can be as, as silly as, um, what color are you feeling today? And then we go around, it can be a show and tell circle, or it can be something instructional. Like what's your favorite thing that we learned this week? Or it can be something um, related to like, if there's a current event going on, maybe you want to give kids time to process COVID. Maybe, you know, uh, you're having a student highlight like what they like to do an all about me circle and one person shares a week, whatever it is, um, just making sure that that's like a really clear routine and a time. And you want to set expectations for that. Like that is, that's the legwork. That's all of September is dedicated to setting this up. Well, I say September because that's when we go back. All of your first month is, is dedicated to setting that up. So, you know, part of it is too, depending on what grade level you teach, you might have to teach how to sit crisscross right. applesauce, how to like, where do you keep your hands? You might have to actually physically go in and teach all of this stuff one by one. And so I think that's where people get discouraged because they don't think about all of the little things that could go wrong when you put like six, like six-year-olds together 
And then they get discouraged because it's like, you weren't even listening to the circle. Like you were picking your nose and you're over here touching something, right? So don't get discouraged, you know, when it doesn't, it doesn't work out. You really do have to really coach that behavior um, and then get really small with it and then build up your building of the scale. So your first circle that you do, let, let's say you do a Monday morning circle and it's really simple. What did you do over the weekend? Really easy. Maybe that first circle, not everybody is going right? Maybe that first circle is just about how do we sit together? Like, is there a circle song? When you hear the circle song, you come in, you sit down, all of these things just to kind of build the routine. And then you're gradually, gradually building up to where maybe in November, you're having a more meaningful circle. And then maybe when something does go wrong in December, that circle, because we've trained these routines is a place where we can unpack, how did it make you feel? How did this impact our community? That kind of thing. I love it. Thank you for the, for the detail on that. Um, so instructional coaches who are largely the people listening to this, they do support teachers in lots of different areas, but usually the focus is supposed to be obviously instruction, but instruction mm. can't happen when behavior doesn't happen, right? So yes. how can a coach help a teacher start reflecting on their practice and how can they help them start integrating some of these practices? Right. Um, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I am a big believer of like the power of video of scripting. Uh, if you, especially if you have a teacher that's struggling, I think it's really important because a lot of teachers don't really see how they are. Like they don't really, it's hard for teachers to like get out and be reflective. Um, even just like a timer, like timing, how often the teacher is talking, just really getting down to basics and looking at some data with that teacher, I find to be very helpful. Another piece is to get to the bottom of those beliefs. Like what is the belief about kids that's preventing you from implementing X, Y, and Z? What, what do you believe about the capacity of the student that makes it hard for you to accept my, my feedback on, on whatever I'm giving you feedback on, right? All of those things really help um, to kind of get to these breakthrough moments with teachers when, when you're working on coaching them. And I think being really honest about the role that behavior plays. I think, of course, in an idealized version, I would love to not have to talk about behavior. I actually started off as an instructional coach and I thought I was going to be doing instruction. Mm -hmm. the, the, the kids had other plans for me. It was not instruction. It became you know, behavior. So I think being really honest and saying like the, we don't even know if your instructional practices are working because the behavior is preventing us from getting there. So what can we do? Like, what are some quick fixes? And then what are some long-term projects? When I do coaching meetings, I like to think about today, this week, this month, and this year, and really break it down. Like, so here's something that would be really dope for next year for you to do. And noting that, but you're not going to launch something this week. <laughs> so you have to balance it out, right? Because people want actionable things that they can do tomorrow. Like maybe your, your small bite-sized thing is, I think your lesson will go more smoothly if you have a launch activity that helps students like emotionally regulate before they get into this really demanding, this really academically demanding topic. Or I saw your lesson on decimals, and I think like a lot of your instructional practices are sound, but the reason why we didn't get to instruction is because you talked straight for four minutes and I timed you and you might not notice it, but I noticed that the seven kids in the back at the two minute mark, they were checking out. Mm -hmm. So how can we incorporate gestures, movement, mm -hmm. um, whatever it is to help, to help spice that up? Just little things like that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I want to know where I can go to learn a little bit more about this topic, where others can go to learn more about it. So what are some of your favorite resources for learning about anti-racist behavior, 
approach or any of the things that we've talked about today? Yeah, um, I would say, like I said, the I always, I love to give practices and it's important to give practices, but the practices aren't more important than the internal work that you have to do to unpack your biases. So I would say like, as far as any any teacher, I think the, the book that you have to read, the most important book you have to read is We Want to Do More Than Survive by Dr. Bettina Love. That's the most important book. I would say start there. Um, other books that are really great is this book is Anti-Racist by Tiffany Jewell. Unpack Your Impact by Naomi O'Brien and Lanisha Tab, uh, Culture Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. Any of those books would be really, really great um, to, to start to read, to start to kind of figure out who you are in the space. Mm -hmm. As far as like resources, I think, you know, also anti-racist teaching is also, a lot of it is just good instructional practices, right? So if you're getting investment and you're like learning more about good instructional practices, whether it's from the curriculum provider or you know you're tapped into another resource like edutopia or um, teach learning for justice formerly teaching tolerance all of those are really great spots where you can just learn more about teaching and i really recommend that especially instructional coaches find that love and that passion again for the craft you got to just fall back in love with the craft of teaching the art of teaching scaffolding differentiation feedback you just gotta like reconnect to your love of that um, and that will help you through the rough patches because there will be so many rough patches so i would say uh things like that help me stay connected i think that there's a lot of great folks on social media i think people are getting more comfortable with learning from social media than we, maybe we were before but there's a lot of uh, folks there i um i do this work with you know schools and individuals so if you want to learn more about what i do you can go to dianasmithconsulting.com um and my instagram is just my name diana smith um and i'm like recently on tiktok trying to old tiktok thing trying to stay current so i'd love to connect with you um on any of social medias there but i would say yeah those are the main the main books and websites i would use when when it comes down to like figuring out how to do this work well um oh another book too i guess is uh, cultivating genius by goldie muhammad which i'm sure everyone has heard of but i cannot stress enough that that one is another solid one that's awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for the tips. Yes, <laughs> yes. Focused in the work and to, to hopefully find joy in teaching again. Yes. Yeah. And that, that is really my hope is that folks reconnect to, to that joy. And if it, as an instructional coach, that means that you need to model a lesson. Like I used to love modeling lessons and it was, it was as much for me as it was for the teacher. Cause yes, they needed to see me do it. But it was also for me to be like, why do I, why do I do this again? Like, do I even like this job? Right. So modeling, um, if you can, is another great way to just like stay fresh and stay connected. You're so right. Whenever, so I left a campus four years ago, whenever my first daughter was born and I do work with schools, but I don't, I don't live at a school, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when I think about what I miss the most from my career of living at a school, I don't miss the coaching. I miss the teaching. Yes, those are the parts that I miss so much. So yeah, that's you have to get your hand back in there, and it's so it's a great way to do it in small doses. It's kind of like babysitting. <laughs> you can yes, exactly. Yeah, back to the parents. <laughs> yes, well, thank you absolutely. so much for being here today, Diana. I appreciate all of your all the information that you shared and um, everything that you brought with you this day it was great. Oh well, thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure and. Yeah, I hope someone out there got a little nugget from from what I was talking about. And uh, thank you for just allowing me to talk about this. It's my passion, so I can talk about it all day. <laughs>
Absolutely. And yes, if you are interested in learning more, you definitely should check out um, Deanna's Instagram because it's great. You have so much there. I love that you have, you have like the little reels that everybody does, but you also have um, really great videos of you explaining things. And so I think it's a really great source of information. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I know that was a lot of information from Deanna and I think it was great. I loved how much wisdom and knowledge she brought and also I'm hoping that she gave you some tools that you can use and also maybe a, a mentality or an outlook on your work because I know that that's one of the biggest problems we're having right now is finding joy in our work, finding purpose in the work whenever it's been so unstable and hasn't really reflected the roles that we had wanted to serve for so long. So I hope that you found something in this podcast that you will put in your back pocket and keep with you to bring you a little bit of joy and purpose over the next few months. If you are ready to find some more resources, I have some other episodes about related topics that might be a great place to start. Episode 28 is all about coaching for equity. And that is with Elena Aguilar, which is, she's the author of Coaching for Equity. Lori Camp did an interview with me um, in episode 79, and it was about video coaching. So today, Deanna mentioned that video coaching is a great way to help teachers kind of see the need for certain things or kind of examine their practice. So check out episode 79. Corey Camp did a deep dive into what video coaching could look like. And I'm still surprised at how much information she shared with us. So you can check out episode 79. Episode 121 is Advocating for Equity with Dr. Lindsay Wilson. We talked about some of these topics, but we're focused more about on equity and what equitable practices look like at a school level, what schools can do. And episode 123 is about behavior data. So again, that's another tool that you can use whenever you're trying to work with teachers in those coaching cycles and you, you, know, you see that maybe there needs to be a change, but you're not sure how to approach the conversation. Check out episode 23, 123 for that. I also have a free download for you about coaching classroom management. So you can grab that download. It's got a list of procedures that need to be explicitly taught, which is something that Gianna mentioned today setting our kids up for success by preparing them with, this is what it looks like to do this. This is what this looks like. Really making sure everybody knows all the ins and outs of the classroom before we expect them to do it independently. And you can get that at buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 127. Just scroll down to the bottom of that post. That's the show notes. It'll give you a little summary of this episode and you can listen to it again there for whatever reason you should choose to do so. And you can grab that free download towards the bottom, coaching classroom management. Next week in episode 128, we're going to continue our focus on behavior and how you can support teachers in tough times. Supporting teachers and planning for engagement, which is something Deanna talked about a little bit today, can minimize behavior issues if we're really purposeful about it. So join me next week to learn how you can make that happen. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.